So Robin, uh, first off, I want to thank you so much for coming in today. Um, as I was saying to you before, um, you, you were someone, I know we've met a time or two, it's been a while, mm-hmm. um, but you were just somebody who I think came on my radar almost as soon as I moved to Louisville. And I guess primarily, uh, one of the main ways that the general public knows you as a uh, food writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, today, hopefully, if you don't mind, I'm going to pry a little bit behind the, uh, behind the mask of the food writer. But again, thanks for coming in today. I guess I want to start my, my usual curiosity, even for people who are from Louisville. Uh, where did you grow up? Are you, are you originally from Louisville? I am originally from Louisville. Mm-hmm. Grew up here. Grew up mostly in the Highlands. Uh-huh. And uh, born at the dawn of the baby boom. <laughs> so you can see the hair is more gray than anything else. <laughs> Let's not get too descriptive. I do still try to keep that low profile when I get out there into the restaurant world. Absolutely. I was talking to somebody recently about how it took me years. You know, when I first got here, I, I became aware of the whole, so where'd you go to school question. Um, but it took me the longest time to realize that it wasn't where you would, it, it wasn't how you would get that maybe out in the world. That here, people literally wanted to know, where'd you grow up? What part of town did you grow up? What was your experience of the Highlands when you grew up versus, versus now? Has it changed a lot? Um, looks the same. Looks the same. Some of the stores are different. Sure. Uh, Cherokee Triangle went through a period where it was pretty downscale. People were aggrieved that those beautiful old houses were being mm-hmm. broken up into hippie pads. <laughs> so that has surely changed. You know, I thought about getting a hippie pad there myself for a while. <laughs> and looking back, it's like, oh, and that was an investment pe- was, possibly. I doubt very many of them stayed to keep the investment, I think was mostly rental property. Um, So from growing up in the Highlands, um, I guess one of the most obvious things, questions to me to ask just in terms of what you're mostly known for now, were you looking back, were you always somebody who was into food? Was food a focus for you or like the rest of us, did you just eat? A little of both. I'm kind of, I think my parents were early, early foodies. Uh My mom was not a spectacular cook, (laughs) but they loved to eat out. Sure. Sometimes they'd take the kids along. We had to behave on a trip to Pennsylvania once. They took us for lobsters at Bookbinder's Restaurant in Philly. (laughs) So, got to learn how to do this, kids. So, I think they did in some way, even though mom was pretty much a steak and potatoes and tuna fish cook. Sure. They did. They gave me and my, I'm the oldest, me and my younger brother and sister, mm-hmm. some appreciation and interest in food. Mm-hmm. So by the time adulthood came along and the baby boomers started getting really interested in food, why mm-hmm. I was right there with it. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, your, your folks, what, what was their background? Are they from Louisville originally as they well? They are. Our families, both sides of the family have been here since... Uh, Early 1800s, I okay. guess. So if you run into a gar, it's probably some distant kin, although I won't know them. Yeah. And my mom was one of the bazillion Mattingleys. <laughs> okay. Did, uh, did both your folks work, or was your did mom they, a stay-at-home? Or? My mom was a stay-at-home mm-hmm. until my sister got into school. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she uh, became a teacher. Mm-hmm. Ended up a math supervisor for county schools. Mm-hmm. She was actually trained as an engineer. First woman engineer ever to graduate from speed. Oh, good for her. (laughs) And my dad was, uh, he had a piece of a small packing and shipping supply company. And Mm -hmm. midlife uh, changed over and became the first uh, 
director of the cerebral palsy school. Hmm. So work the sheltered workshop. Sure, sure. So, so actually, I want to come back to both of those things in just a minute. Um, but that's interesting. So you, you grew up in the Highlands. You went to high school there? Yeah, the I never Highlands, answer or? that question. Never? No? I, no, that's no, a private. I, okay. I'm in All a right. circle. Well, no, it's, this is interesting because mm. I have always been in a circle that did not ask that question. Uh, okay. And so when people say, hey, why in the world would you want to know something like that? <laughs> <laughs> so you went to a school. Yeah. Um, no, I went to St. X. Okay, okay. But, uh, but it's funny that uh, everybody jokes about that, but it happens. That's, that's not been a question in my circles. Yeah, yeah. No. And you said you had two siblings? Right, so younger brother and sister, okay. all three years apart. Um, so in, the early, in your early life, um, other than the, the eventual destiny, the direction that you did take. Um, what, what were some of your early interests? What were you into when you were 16, 17 well, years old? let's see. I was an Eagle Scout. Uh-huh. Who wasn't? <laughs> I was not. <laughs> okay. I was very interested in astronomy. I uh-huh. was active in the Louisville Junior Astronomical Society. Mm-hmm. Used to take our telescopes out in the country and let people look through them. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So was that ever something that you thought about pursuing? You know, in a way, I thought about it when I started in UofL. I kind of thought, well, will I do science or will I do English? You know, mm-hmm. I like them both. Mm-hmm. So a couple of semesters of physics and calculus was enough to make me say, you know, <laughs> I really like literature a lot. Let's go with the English major. But you had that dual interest, which is kind of unusual. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't you think? I don't know. It worked for me. It worked for you. Okay. It's funny, I see. I think I've run into more scientists who have sort of a side literary interest than, than literary or English uh, folk who are willing to admit that they like science, too. Yeah, always <laughs> worked that way for me, still does. Yeah, yeah. So you went to U of L. Yeah. And you were an English major. Right, first time, then came back for uh, community development and urban affairs about a decade later. Okay, okay. So when you were first out of school... Um, did you go straight into journalism, or did you do what well, most of this us Well, this was in an era where the military came into question. Ah. So, uh, I had thought I could escape, which was fairly stupid of me. And uh, With the Army nipping at my heels, I jumped mm-hmm. into the Air Force instead and uh, mm-hmm. ended up working in public information. Mm-hmm. So I sort of got journalism training ah, with okay. the help of the government. Sure, sure. Well, it's good for something. So I spent the Vietnam War in southern Idaho, uh-huh. mostly uh, giving talks to the Chamber of Commerce, <laughs> <laughs> helping run the base newspaper, uh-huh. PR news releases, stuff like that. Now, just out of curiosity, I, I'm imagining if you're up in that area, were these sort of early big bases that were also kind of connected to... Uh, Cold War missile defense and all that kind of uh, stuff. That's in, in the middle of nowhere. Can, yeah, no, this was uh, actually, it was in the southern Idaho desert, mm-hmm. so it was an airport with very long runways. <laughs> and it had been, it was the last B-47 base in the Air Force. Oh, okay. But just before I got there, it had switched over to the uh, RF-4C Phantom, mm-hmm. which was reconnaissance version mm-hmm. of a fighter plane, no weapons. Mm-hmm. That suited me just fine. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, a lot of our guys would basically go over to Vietnam and, you know, take pictures, essentially, sure. intelligent stuff. So not only were you sort of drawn toward the uh, 
journalism and information side of things, but you lucked into one of the few military bases that was all about information yeah, <laughs> as well. Um, so you did uh, one stint? Yeah, four years. Okay. Four years and a half. And then back to Louisville? No, I went to L.A. for a while, a romantic situation. Sure, sure. <laughs> Spent a couple of years there. Actually, uh, my first newspaper job was there. And that was just out of curiosity. Uh, yeah, a small. It's in fact, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was a small daily weekly. Let me explain. It was in the foothills above Glendale and Burbank and mm-hmm. Pasadena, covered all of those cities. It every subscriber got it twice a week, but mm-hmm. the paper came out every day with a different edition. Ah, uh, okay. It was, it was like working for a daily paper. Sure, sure. Um, gosh, I guess. Starting from there, you've seen sort of the high point of print newspaper all the way through to where it is now. We still had typewriters and wrote our stories on paper. <laughs> my, uh, I grew up in a small town uh, in Louisiana, and my dad had a furniture store. And the furniture store was right across the street from the daily newspaper. And the, the only reason we were lucky enough to have a daily in a, as small a town as we were is because there was a big mill there. It was a whole reason we existed. But my dad was good friends with the uh, the publisher. So I got to start going over there, you know, as a very young kid. So, you know, the smell of the, the ink from the mm. printing presses and, you know, the clatter of typewriters and the smell of correcting fluid, you know, that all kind of left an impression in yeah. the young brain. Um, so that was your start. You were in L.A. for a little bit. A couple of years. A couple of years. Yeah, we were there for the Silmar quake in 70... 71, I guess. Uh-huh. Was that your first earthquake? Yeah, first and pretty much the last. I was going to do this. I'm not sure I want to stay here. <laughs> well, that and there was very little chance of going directly from my little paper to the L.A. Times. Uh-huh. So career-wise, eventually I just said, yeah, I'm gonna, I think we'll go back to Louisville. Everyone always does. That so, seems to be uh, true. At that time started, uh, I joined the old... Voice of St. Matthew's newspaper, mm-hmm. which at that time had just come under new ownership. Mm-hmm. Young guy who had been an editorial writer at the uh, Courier-Journal mm-hmm. and really wanted to try to make it into a competitive publication. So very serious about news. Mm-hmm. Didn't have a big budget, but it made it a lot of fun. We uh, tried to take the battle to the Courier-Journal on our turf and <laughs> beat them to all the local stories if we could, which was, it was a lot of fun, and uh, our publisher backed that, so... It wasn't really the Voice Tribune of today. Yeah. But, uh, although Lucy Blodgett was there. Were you, and, and for anybody who doesn't know, uh, and I'm only sort of vainly aware, or, or slightly aware, I should say, uh, Lucy Blodgett. She's a famous old school society reporter right. who <laughs> covered all the parties in the East End, and I think she was around for an awfully long time. Yeah. May yeah. still be. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy, if you're out there, get in touch. Yes, please do. Um, how long were you there? I was there for three or four years. Okay. It was in 76, I guess, that I went over to the Louisville Times, mm-hmm. which had been my dream job ever since a kid, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, it became a regular, everyday morning uh, deadline reporter. Mm-hmm. Ended up covering just about everything they did. Mm-hmm. Some of the big stories of those years is the sewer explosions. (laughs) That was a good one. And and some pretty terrible stuff, too, you know, the school bus crash and all of that. So I stayed with the Times until it was 
you know, they sold to get out and folded into the CJ and mm-hmm. wasn't as much fun after that. Yeah. Particularly for those of us who had tried to start a newspaper guild union in the newsroom. Oh. I think we might have put a target on our backs. <laughs> so the, I would uh, say Gannett is virulently anti-union. I Not just anti-union, but virulently. Virulently. So. Um, yeah, it's something they've definitely held true to. Um, there's something I'm curi- curious about from your perspective um, as a journalist, I guess, both in what you've covered over the years, but also your experience you know, in the newsroom, uh, the whole union situation. I know it's a little different in different parts of the country, but especially these days, it seems to be a fairly blanket attack on, on labor organization mm-hmm. and things like that. In Kentucky, though, with its history, which I know is mostly in the in the East and with coal mining, but um, was that something, the sort of slow erosion of, of labor and, and union work, was that something you saw coming even, you know, way back, or did that kind of sneak up? I'm not sure how conscious I was, but yeah. of course now Louisville, in addition to the United Mine Workers in the East, mm-hmm. well, Louisville was a very strong union town. Mm-hmm. And I know in the, even in the maybe 70s, a lot of the business people started referring to it as Strike City, as if that were a bad thing. <laughs> but with two auto plants and General Electric uh, true, and all of true. the uh, okay. rubber town synthetic rubber industry, mm-hmm. but yeah, unions had been very strong here and, okay. and probably even still are compared to maybe other Sunbelt cities. Sure, sure. So I would say that uh, unionism is kind of baked into the DNA of Louisville. But mm-hmm. But sure, since Reagan in the 80s, it's gone down, down, down. Yeah. It's interesting these days talking to a lot of young activists. Um, I mean, it's typical of all of us, I guess, you know, when you're 20 and 30 years old, the history you know is the history that you've lived. And so many mm-hmm. people seem to think of the uh, anti-labor, anti-union thing as something that's fairly new. But I, I, I mean, I know as a kid, I remember the Reagan era and oh, yeah. all of that. But, um, it, Go back and read about the Pullman strike. Oh, yeah. So it's nothing new there. Nothing new. No, the oligarchy does not like to have its money taken away. (laughs) (laughs) Never has, never will. Never will, will. never will. Um, Whole other conversation we could get get into. But um, before we get too far off, um, so at that point you were primarily just a general general would, would, yeah. do they still come on beat writers most or? of the time i was well let's see i came as a general assignment reporter mm-hmm. happened to be very good at writing on deadline uh-huh. i'm sort of an adrenaline junkie <laughs> and that the unfortunate thing at the newspaper is if you get if you're good at something like that they tend to keep you on it for a while yeah but in my years at the paper i pretty much covered all the beats city hall county government this was before merger of course mm-hmm. School board for a while, higher education. I don't know. I'm, you know, they move people around from time to time so you don't get stale. Sure. So I did all of those things. The wine and food was always strictly on the side. When did that start? A for lot you? of times the public doesn't understand that. Yeah. But, uh, early 80s, mm-hmm. the food writer for the Times at the time noticed that wine was sort of starting to get to be a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of younger people don't remember that uh, until maybe about the time the baby boom started growing up, most people who drank wine were either what they called winos in the streets Mm -hmm. or very wealthy people. Mm -hmm. 
and the middle class really didn't have very much interest in it. Well, young people started drinking Annie Green Springs and Ripple, <laughs> and then gradually began to notice that, hey, there's better stuff. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the world of wine exploded. And most of the major newspapers on the coast started writing about mm-hmm. wine. So Nancy, the food editor, decided she wanted to do it, too. Mm-hmm. By odd coincidence, uh, I covered a wine tasting one time as a feature story. Mm-hmm. And Nancy said, you know about wine? No, not really. <laughs> when I was out west, I went to this place called Napa Valley one time. You could go visit these winemaking places, right, and you could go right. in, and they'd give you free wine, and it was really cool. He said, you know enough. Do me a wine column, and I'll pay you for it. You know, I said, I had to think about it. I said, you know, I don't know very much. And she said, just stay one lesson ahead of the class. <laughs> so I started writing about wine and getting paid for it. Sure. And getting paid you know, buying the wine on expense account. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is pretty amazing. Well, again, and this was very part-time, mm-hmm. not much money. I sure. think in that age it was maybe 30 bucks a week, <laughs> plus expenses. Right, right. And it was fun. So that kind of threw me into the culinary round. So a couple of years after that, when the Times Dining Critic job came open, I was invited to apply for it and, mm-hmm. and did. And so started writing about that, too. Again, part-time, very <laughs> limited amount of money, but paid in fun. And uh, did that until I left in 1990. Hmm. What, um, who had been the, the, the fine dining writer before See, you? See, I guess it was Ken Newhouser okay. before me. Okay. Started with Richard Desrousseau. Mm-hmm. Might have been one more person in there. I think there was maybe... Ann Cooper, who went on to cover Russia for NPR, hmm. and only did it for a few months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice person, but she had a unfortunate tendency to be even more negative than most people <laughs> like to read. <laughs> <laughs> so then Ken took over and did it for years. Right, right. So I came into that one in maybe '84 and stayed until '90. Okay. So uh, that was when I left the papers again. Gannett had come, the Times had died, and mm-hmm. the fun just wasn't there anymore. Sure. So that was where I kind of did a major switch in life and uh, got a job in New York City with a national nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Was that something, was it connected to things you were already doing, or was it just an opportunity that popped up and you said, New York? I think it was connected to a uh, kind of a background ethos that I hadn't really had in the front of my work at the papers, but it always informed what I did. Mm -hmm. And that uh, it had to do with world hunger, Mm -hmm. I thought. It Mm -hmm. actually turned out I did a project about American poverty, but it's kind of all up and down in the same direction. Sure. Uh, I'd always been interested in all the connections of food, how we feed hungry people, how agriculture works, mm-hmm. what goes wrong and right with agriculture. Read a lot of Francis Moore Lape's books when they first came sure, out. Yeah. So, you know, again, it hadn't been my primary work, but it had informed my food writing and also made me think when I left the paper, okay, what can I do? Maybe, you know, just something that'll give back a little. Mm-hmm. So I just, it was weird. I ran across this opening at World Hunger Gear, W H Y, in New York City. It's, it's the nonprofit that Harry Chapin had founded. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
and we created a new program there called Reinvesting in America, hmm. which basically, since I had been reporting for 20 years at that point, I suggested creating a job that I like to say it took the tools of journalism and turned them to a more benign purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, essentially spent four years traveling all over the country to hmm. all 50 states, hmm. essentially using reporting tools to try and identify the most creative and effective grassroots programs that were fighting hunger and poverty in innovative ways hmm. that could possibly be replicated elsewhere. Sure. Initially, the idea was really just to build a database and look at it, and I guess, I think a lot of the, my colleagues there were kind of Washington-focused and policy-focused mm -hmm. and thinking, well, maybe we can take this to Washington and push them in directions. Right. I ended up writing a book. What was the book? It was called Reinvesting in America. Mm -hmm. uh, Addison Wesley published it in 1995. You can okay. still find it on Amazon for two cents, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> never Which is not a reflection of its value, just it, its price. It never became um, a bestseller, but uh, it did sort of you know, achieve some notoriety in the nonprofit arena. Mm. And was it was its primary focus still about about food, or did well, you expand? Writing, no, I was writing about the organizations that right. I visited. Okay. So. Now I'm just curious. This would have been late '80s. No, 1995. Oh, 95. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I need to write so the time during the during the Clinton administration. The end of the yeah, the end of the first Bush administration and the beginning of Clinton. Hmm. Interesting times then too. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious, when you were out on the road and visiting different places, were there, it's always interesting when, you've, when you find little pockets of unexpected um, experimentalism, but also just plain problem solving. Did you find some that were just wholly unexpected, or did you kind of follow from track to track? Gosh, it's been long enough I now know, I'm going to have to kind of drag some of them back. Sure. A lot of the ones that interested me the most and that got space in the book were pretty creative. There was mm. a guy in Milwaukee uh, in a Latino community on the south side who mm. recognized that a lot of his a lot of his neighbors, young guys, like to work on cars. Mm -hmm. So they opened a basically a body shop garage where they took people who were chronically unemployed and started getting them involved in working on cars and mm -hmm. eventually, you know, gaining the skills where they could go to work for auto repair shops or start their own. Sure. Esperanza Unida, <laughs> United Hope. Nice. So. That, it's interesting, too, that that, that side of uh, activism, I think, has been some of the most successful work of the last 30 years, you know, the sort of direct, practical, mm -hmm. you know, the classic teaching a man to fish sort of things. Mm -hmm. I was very briefly involved uh, in some of the activist community in uh, Chicago in the early 90s. And you had everything from high to low. You had some people who were just outright, you know, change the laws, change the policies, like you were saying, the, the wonkier side. But the people mm -hmm. that always fascinated me were the ones who were saying, open a shop, teach, mm -hmm. teach some skills. Um, and they seemed to have the, uh, they seemed to have the legs mm -hmm. in the long run. Yeah, a lot, that, a lot of the stuff we did or looked for was along those general lines. Sure. Job training or, you know, just generally life skills training, mm -hmm. community organizing. Yeah. We, in fact, you mentioned Chicago. I, 
gosh, can't think of the name of it now, but there was a very active organizing group in Cabrini Green. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm one of the few people with a T-shirt that says, I went to Chicago and went to Cabrini Green. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get too much of that. Not so much. (laughs) I like to say I visited all of the, went to every one of the 50 states, visited Mm -hmm. most of the cities, got to see the poorest neighborhoods in Mm -hmm. all of them. It's quite an experience. Oh, I can imagine. And you find people just like us. <laughs> it's always the most shocking people to every, or shocking thing to everybody. I think, oh, these are just people. Mm-hmm. Um, we we're lucky enough because of the whole flamenco thing. We try to go to Spain every year, and my Spanish is terrible, almost non-existent. Um, but the last time I went, I'm like, all right, whatever, however foolish you have to seem to somebody to get a point across or communicate, just do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I was like, you know, if they just think of you as the stupid four-year-old who happens to look like a middle-aged man, you know, that's fine. Um, but that was the most pleasant thing because we interact mostly with, you know, artists, flamenco people. Mm-hmm. And finally, just being able to let myself be vulnerable, we just started meeting people in the neighborhood. Yeah, they appreciate it that you try. They really appreciated it. Yeah. Um, and like you say, just people. Yeah. Uh, interesting people and people who... <laughs> People who mostly people who were willing to buy lots of drinks if, if that kept the conversation going, which I, Very nice. <laughs> I really appreciated. Um, so you were in you were in New York with that organization, mm-hmm. and then traveling, and you were with them for how long? Not, well, I, we stayed in New York for four years. Okay. When I got to the fifty estate, then I did the book proposal. Okay. And when I got the contract, I stayed with the organization for another year or two, but came back to Louisville. Hmm to write the book, okay. and then worked out of here for a couple of years, but really once the book was done, and you know, the organization's a good organization, but at that point it kind of started, you know, the database is done, so moving sure. more to the wonk side and lobbying in Washington again, that was okay, but, uh, you know, it's like, okay, time to move on again. Right. For, you know, friendly, but uh, just, okay, we've done this. Yeah, it's a parting of the ways. Got the newspaper out of my system. <laughs> I'm curious, while you were writing the book, always interesting to talk to writers in terms of of process. Were you one of those people who got up in the morning and grabbed a cup of coffee and just went straight in? Did you, did you, or or were you even that? Pretty much. Well, let me say this. I did did it morning, Mm -hmm. but I I feel like I say I cheated because (laughs) this was the very early days of the laptop. Oh, okay. So I had my laptop with me on all Uh my travels. So every night, as soon as I got back, I would treat it as if I were a reporter and I had just done this story. Ah. So I would sit down and right, right. write it, email it off to the office, keep it in my file. Right. So once I got the book contract, I had like 250 <laughs> short stories. Right. And then honestly, writing the book was really a matter of stitching them together and writing the eight-chapter intros. So you were your own editor But I that did that mornings right. and I set myself a page limit every sure. day. Sure, And it worked out pretty well. It took three or four months. So all the, those years on deadline paid off. Yeah, in that case, I guess it did. <laughs> um, so you came back, mm-hmm. you finished the book. One thing I might mention about sure, that, I didn't, I was, it was non-profit, so I didn't get a lot of pay. Yeah. But wherever I went, you know, I never ate in the chain restaurant. Yeah. I would always look for something interesting, something local, something mm-hmm. ethnic. Mm-hmm. But eat out wherever I went. Mm-hmm. I had made some contacts with the New York Times, so not frequently, but now and then I'd pitch them a story for the travel section about someplace I'd been and something I'd eat. Sure. So I kind of kept that hand alive, too. Mm-hmm. I had also uh, 
got into the computer business fairly early. Mm-hmm. Maybe this relates to the science side of my interest again, you know, right. but I was doing computers from 1982. So yeah. I had found the earliest forms of social media and gotten involved with CompuServe back in 85 and helped run the Wine and Food Forum. Oh, wow. So I, I kept doing that while I was away, too. And... Uh, so while I was doing all the nonprofit stuff, I hadn't really completely lost the food and drink side or <laughs> sure. writing about it. And that was what prompted me when, once we got back here and we were starting to say, okay, mm-hmm. this book advance was nice, but it's not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I'm just curious, since you were into, at that point, I guess those would have been bulletin boards-ish. Yeah. Um, were those... Are, did those get archived? Did those exist out in the world somewhere still? Not that I know, you know of, but you yeah. know how Google is. Uh, true. <laughs> no guarantees. I'm always curious about that. I was I was a slow early adopter, but I always knew people who had been there at the cutting edge early on. Mm-hmm. And it always seemed to fall down into, you know, one of two camps. There mm-hmm. were the people who religiously backed up everything, everything, everything. Because, you know, everybody's convinced mm-hmm. that you know, someday they're going to want to know everything about my life. So let me make sure I put this aside. Yeah, well, I think Usenet may still be archived. Oh, okay, okay. So, but I, don't, I don't know. Now we're out of my... No, that's okay. <laughs> I, won't, I, won't, I won't test you. Um, so from there, so many directions to go on that. Um, when, you, when you first came back and you realized you were going to be staying at Louisville mm-hmm. then, and the book was behind you, or at least that, um, did you go... Did you go back to journalism at that point, or? Not really. Not I mean, really. we've. I have been pretty much. I'm not. I guess you could call it self-employed. My okay. wife and I set up a small, corp LLC. Sure, sure. And uh, we do whatever we want to do under its umbrella. You right, know? And right. it's mostly creative stuff. Uh, oh, that's great. We did some. We were at that time. We were kind of ahead of the average Joe on web design. Uh-huh. So we did some websites for pay. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think I did the first website for Heine Brothers and the first <laughs> for Leo. I <laughs> uh, got on with uh, Louisville Magazine, not mm-hmm. on staff, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, contract to do both web and some writing stuff for sure. them. And we set up our websites, and uh, fairly early on, still in the 90s, mm-hmm. started finding ways to monetize them through advertising. Mm-hmm. None of this stuff was really very wealth-producing. Sure. It's like you're basically looking at, uh, you know, I would have been a hippie if I hadn't been in the Air Force. But, uh, <laughs> it's like looking back on it now, both my wife and I, uh, you know, money has never been the primary driving force sure. for us. Sure. So I've done all this stuff, and none of it ever made us very rich. <laughs> Probably the wisest move we ever made was buying a house off of Frankfurt Avenue in 1994. <laughs> That would have been, yeah, <laughs> smart. <laughs> so not, that hadn't been yeah. a complete loss. You've, well, and, and it sounds like you've definitely been able to uh, to keep able, all your hobbies going. Yeah, and we've, been, we've been able to live and travel, and uh, particularly because of the Wine Forum and international mm-hmm. connections with tour organizations, mm-hmm. we've been able to travel widely. That's fantastic. You know, I mean, uh, to travel with wine is the reason. You sometimes leading tours or judging. Mm-hmm competition so all over Europe mm-hmm. New Zealand and Australia South America where, California this is completely random but where has been the most surprising uh, wine scene that you've come across in that sense like places that produce 
fantastic wines that nobody knows about? Oh, that nobody knows about. <laughs> or, do we, or do we want to keep it that nobody well, knows no, about? No, that's <laughs> okay, no. Well, one, I, I did come to far northeastern Italy so much mm -hmm. that I've got to where I didn't need a map anymore. <laughs> and it, that is really not the most well-known wine sure. area at all, sure. but it's really just very lovely. They call it, uh, gosh, Europe in a wine glass or something from from the Adriatic mm -hmm. to the Alps mm -hmm. in about a three-hour drive. Mm. Lakes and mountains and yeah. good wine farms. Yeah. Very neat. Friuli, Venezia, Giulia. From around Trieste, sure. Udine. Sure. I, I've only traveled a tiny bit in Italy. Um, but I'm gonna, I'll keep those names in the back, back of my mind. My wife is from Italy. Oh, is she? And we keep saying we're going to go back and track down, you know, the, the family, see where mm. all the family has gone. Um, unfortunately, the village that all of her people came from is now one of those, you know, abandoned villages that sits in the middle of a oh. national forest. Uh, but we're going to go back. Well, that sounds like fun. Yeah. We should do it. So... You've been maintaining a more or less independent life then for the last 20 years. Yeah, basically, actually. Um, almost getting on toward 25. Yeah, congratulations. That's yeah. that's a great goal to, <laughs> to me. I don't know how we did it, Justin. <laughs> yeah. Now, if, if this, I don't want to, again, pry into things too much, but I'm curious. I know from just little things I've, said, I've seen, read here and there, that... You definitely have, there's a through line, not only uh, in terms of social awareness in your life, social consciousness, but social conscience. Um, I think it would be fair to say that you're a spiritual man. And has that always been a through line for you? Mm, or is that something not that particularly, kind of, yeah. Uh, okay, this is interesting, because my other master's degree is Master of Divinity from the Presbyterian Seminary. Yeah, I, I was, which I was, was going a there, recent thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I... Uh, Mentioned going to St. X, but basically uh, the pre-Vatican Catholic Church pretty much either spit me out or I spit it out when I was a teenager. <laughs> so I had been, quote, spiritual, but sure. not religious for sure. most of my life. Mm -hmm. My mom had brought me up, I think, in a very good way, mm -hmm. uh, kind of emphasizing the social justice aspects of religion and, mm -hmm. you know, what did Jesus do really? And now we're talking about giving your money to the poor and right. all of that stuff and not not some of the crazier things that we see. But uh, that had maybe been an inner part of my life, but not anything that I had been deeply involved with. Mm -hmm. It was really working with World Hunger Year. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't help but notice that maybe a half or two thirds of the most creative organizations I visited were faith-based. Mm -hmm. Typically, usually what you would expect, the mainline to liberal churches. Sure few Baptists in there. I had a great time at a Baptist church in Alexandria, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Got to, here's the food again, got to work in the kitchen <laughs> on the soup line uh, for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. That was sort of the deal. Mm -hmm. You can come in and work with us and learn everything we do, but I'm going to put you to work at lunchtime. Right. So I, that was probably two of the, my most direct kitchen experience in my life of writing about it, which is a very good thing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so Having seen that, I kind of thought, well, okay, this is a little different than the black-clad nuns striking people with yardsticks sure, and stuff. Sure. And 
Uh, we did a little exploring after that, and uh, I found that the Episcopal Church was a very good fit for me and mm-hmm. my wife. Mm-hmm. So both traditional and liberal, and you know, women priests and gay priests and all the right. rest of that stuff. So we got very involved with them, and then through that, I became interested enough to, with the advice of the then bishop, to go ahead and go to seminary. Mm-hmm. Haven't acted on it, haven't been ordained, <laughs> but. Uh, who knows what the future holds. Sure. But I did actually work at an Episcopal church preaching and doing a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. for several years before the you know, routine changes over there. Sure, sure. What, um, at this point, in, in the rest of your life, what do you feel like you took away from being able to have that, that time of putting that emphasis uh, on that part of your life? Well, it was actually more a matter of wearing several different hats uh-huh. at the same time. So you were, you were still all over the place. Huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like you had... Uh, no, I'm definitely a multitasker. Sure. Always have been. Sure. I guess back to the adrenaline junkie part of, uh, yeah. the part of your Well, just at, like writing the wine and food columns and still being a full-time news reporter. Sure. Um, you've mentioned your wife several times. Where did you guys, where'd you guys meet? <laughs> this is fun. I was a reporter. Mm-hmm. She was a public relations director for the Girl Scouts. Mm-hmm. She put on a news event, a fake bus crash off of Poplar Level Road in Camp Taylor, mm-hmm. where all the Girl Scouts were running around doing first aid on fake victims mm-hmm. and stuff. Police came, didn't know it was fake, thought the oh, bus gosh. had plunged off of Poplar <laughs> Level Road. I didn't make a joke out of it and kept their secret, and so I guess that's why my wife was first attracted. <laughs> now we just actually just hit it off and yeah. got together for lunch a couple of times after that. And yeah. 13 years after that, we were finally married. <laughs> I'm a firm believer in taking your time with those well, things. I won't say we didn't live together for a matter of uh, my wife and I took the, uh, I always joke that it was sort of the installment plan, mm-hmm. um, and occasionally she threatened to foreclose, but, um, and uh, did she c- sort of continue on in that, uh, in that sort of work herself, or? Mm. No, actually, she left that to go to work in the field of disability rights. Okay. She was not herself disabled, mm-hmm. but had mm-hmm. friends who were and was very interested mm-hmm. in it, and this was in the time when the lobbying for the Americans with Disabilities Act was first Oh, sure. Beginning. And sure. She was connected with people who were really on the radical side mm-hmm. and uh, created a publication called The Disability Rag that mm-hmm. actually went national for a while, featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and that little column four story one time. Oh, that's fantastic. So, again, never made any money off of it. <laughs> but, uh, made an impact. It was made an impact, yeah. Made an impact. So, so, yeah, we've definitely been along similar paths. Sure. In fact, we didn't know this at the time, we didn't know each other, but when I was first at working at The Voice, she had a job writing at what we thought of as our competitor, the little weekly newspaper for the next suburb over. <laughs> you guys have been in each other's orbit for a long time. Yeah. Um, you said your wife was connected to a lot of uh, radicals. A word that I think gets thrown around almost to the point of, of not meaning anything these days. Mm-hmm. But like, so when you say that, when you say that your wife was sort of connected to, to more radical people in that movement, what does that mean to you? Gosh, I wish she we was Put here. you on the spot. <laughs> I think the notion of 
as with, well, first of all, viewing disabled people mm -hmm. not as objects of charity, but as an oppressed minority. Sure. And uh, an oppressed minority that needed to take action in its own hands, even, mm -hmm. even to people who might be seen as unable to do anything with mm -hmm. their own hands, to provide their own leadership and their own philosophy mm -hmm. and to be involved with government and the business sector to make things happen. Mm -hmm. Boycotts and demonstrations. Sure. There's a group called ADAPT out of Denver that was very active in a lot of demonstrations, chaining themselves to buses that didn't mm -hmm. have lifts. So do you think sort of the heart of what it means to be a radical in any context is just people who sort of take power separate from or parallel to the status quo? Maybe. On or their own terms? Well, I would say the on their own terms, their own terms. is certainly a big part of it. Sure, sure. You know, I'm the journalist again. I mostly watch this. <laughs> I concur. I concur, but she's the radical in the family. It's always good to have one in the family. Right. Um, so I guess I, I'm, I'm going to circle back around just for a second to the, the food writing aspect of what you do. Um, when you started, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm counting here mostly on my own sort of, I was one of those kids who actually read, you know, restaurant reviews and things like that when I was, you know, 10 years old. Um, my memory of what that, what reviews and, and food writing were about back then versus what it's about now, it seemed, um, back then it was pretty straightforward, uh, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, maybe a brief description of context and menu, but then it always kind of hinged just basically on I liked the food, I didn't like the food. And I know some people still kind of mm -hmm. adhere to that. Um, has that changed both, I mean, in general, um, especially like for you, like when you know that you're gonna review a place, is it just sort of, you've got a checklist in mind, things you're gonna most want to report on, or do you kind of let yourself just go in and see what happens? Yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think there is a certain formula, and it's as you described. I mean, mm -hmm. you need to provide that service of describing the the place, the decor, the menu, mm -hmm. unusual things about it, <coughs> unusual things about my experience. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, speaking only for myself, I would never just say I liked it, I didn't, but try <laughs> to describe the food. And sure. I'm thinking most, I've certainly, you know, the Critics at the major mm -hmm. New York Times, Los Angeles Times. I think that's an important part of what they do is know enough about the food to be able to maybe discern something about how it was prepared, mm -hmm. the flavors and how they work together, mm -hmm. maybe nutritional. I don't know. It kind of varies, as you say, from place to place. Sure, sure. Go in with an open mind and see what happens, but try to retain the important stuff. Um, for you as a writer... <clears throat> Especially being, it's kind of interesting for you to be somebody who's been associated with food writing in this town for as long as you have. Um, in some ways, it's had, it's, gotten, it's had to have become more fun over the last couple of decades, <clears throat> if only because of the, the proliferation of restaurants and the mm -hmm. sort of change in terms of what it really means to have a dining experience and what good food is. Now, again, I, I've only been here since 2001, but... My wife was already here back in the 90s. Um, I you know, remember one of my first memorable eating experiences in Louisville's, in Louisville was over at Dietrich's back, mm -hmm. gosh, however many years ago that was. Um, but 
when did you sort of notice things going in a different direction or just becoming sort of revitalized? No, no, actually, you know, I think I'm a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a counter spy on that. Really? I, I don't necessarily think that that things have changed that much. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's more, there's certainly more diversity here now than there was. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the 80s when I started writing the column, you know, the big ethnic was Chinese. Mm-hmm. We just started getting our first Japanese and Thai. Mm-hmm even the first Mexican. So to that extent, yeah, diversity has increased. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, Louisville has always been, and when I say always, I mean long before either of us were around or even maybe our parents. We were always the city mm-hmm. in the middle of a very large rural area. Sure. We were the only place you could buy alcoholic beverages. Mm-hmm. This is the place people came to have fun. Mm-hmm. We were on the river. It mm-hmm. goes back to the, you know, the riverboat culture. We sure. were tied in with... Memphis and New Orleans, and certainly, I don't know, they didn't do things in Cincinnati that we did here. (laughs) (laughs) So to some extent, I think Louisville, you know, the horses. Mm -hmm. This has always been a center for entertainment. Entertainment, sure. I mean, you know, I mean, if you want to start thinking in terms of cultural stereotypes, we had all the Catholics that came down river that thought drinking and dancing were just fine. Sure, sure. The state all around us was all the Baptists that came over the hills and didn't think that stuff was good at all. Mm-hmm. Unless you went into Louisville where nobody knew you and you had a nice weekend <laughs> and then went back home. So, you know, Louisville has always been that kind of place okay. within the bounds of what the culture of its particular time mm-hmm. were. So in the 50s, maybe, when our parents or grandparents were alive, you know, we had, fi- we had seafood restaurants, we had mm-hmm. lobster restaurants mm-hmm. and steakhouses. Maybe, again, around the 70s and early 80s when I started doing this stuff, probably because the baby boom was growing up, there started to be an interest in more sophisticated dining and drinking. Mm-hmm. The Bristol Open. Mm-hmm. At that time, that was something. Sure, sure. Porque no, our first <laughs> Spanish, our first Mexican restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, open. And then, uh, gosh, what was it? Chico's uh-huh. on the Hikes Point. A guy from New Mexico brought New Mexico style Mexican mm-hmm. food in. A lot of us thought it was great, but eventually he had to tone it down a little. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so we would get more than a hardcore of crazies. But, uh, it just seems to me, with the exception of the fact that we were away for four years, that the growth and development has been pretty much linear. Okay. In the 80s, you know, we started, as I said, getting some of the more common Asian ethnic food, and we've always had Italian. Sure. Uh, 90s, a little more so, and then since the turn of the century, there have been so much the Latino diaspora, mm-hmm. so, so many taquerias and what I call Mexican-American places mm-hmm. that are better than what we had before. Sure. Uh, every every group of refugees has brought their own restaurants. You may have noticed we had a lot of Bosnian mm-hmm. restaurants for a while, mm-hmm. and most of those guys learned more English and got better jobs and quit doing <laughs> that. But you know, what'll it be next? Maybe sure. it, maybe we'll have a Congolese restaurant pretty soon. A lot of that. those folks are coming in. Now. Yeah. So. So really, the the perception, and and I obviously kind of fell for this myself. The perception that anything different 
started happening isn't true so much as just it was a continuing evolution of what had already been part of the culture. That's my personal opinion sure. after having been pretty closely involved with sure. it since the early 80s, yes. Yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, you know, there are new people. There's a whole mm-hmm. wave of younger chefs who are really good, mm-hmm. not riffing right down the way at Miriam mm-hmm. here, you know. There's a lot of guys who are going to be the next generation of Bim Dietrichs and uh, Doug Gossmans and uh, Dean Corbett's and mm-hmm. all of those folks. Right. But, uh, you know, life goes on. Mm-hmm. Older guys eventually shuffle off and the younger guys shuffle in. Sure, sure. Um, I'm curious for you as a writer. <clears throat> I know you were joking earlier about you know still having to keep a relatively low profile. Um, I've always wondered about that for food writers because at this point, is can you really go into a restaurant with complete anonymity? It just seems like a lot of people would kind of know who you are, especially if you're reviewing some place that's in your own neighborhood. Mm. Um, that old uh, cliche about, oh, I have to be the anonymous food writer so they don't do anything special, so they don't, you know, change the normal way that they do things. Do you think that still holds true these days when every person with a smartphone is eventually, you know, a reviewer? Well, first, I love that because then anymore I can take pictures of my food and it doesn't, doesn't stand out. immediately make me stand out. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, Yeah, I hadn't been at the paper for too long Mm. before somebody told me, you know your picture's in every kitchen in town. (laughs) So that's true. (laughs) I've been told that. Okay. Uh, I think the secret to me is a couple of things. Mm. To keep a low profile. Mm -hmm. If I, over the years, you know, I, I try really... Generally speaking, not to socialize a lot with the chefs. There are a lot of sure. some writers around town really love doing that and go to all these soft openings and stuff sure. and hang out with the chefs. I really don't care to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I recognize that after all of this time, there are people who know who I am. Certainly Griffin knows me. Mm-hmm. He's one of the least likely to be influenced <laughs> by that. <laughs> I think you're right. There are a couple of guys who I won't mention, but who cannot help but try to putting on the dog and rolling out the red carpet. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, if I know them well enough to have this conversation, I say, look, you need to understand that I'm a very calm and easygoing man, but the one way to really get me irritable <laughs> is to do that. You know? <laughs> I just Some people love the red carpet treatment. Right, I do right, not. Right. You're going to hurt yourself if you try to give it to me. Mm-hmm. And there have been occasions where it has been obvious enough that I've just said, okay, I'm going to eat this meal, enjoy it, and I'm going to go home, and I'm not going to write a review this time. Mm. But uh, you'd be surprised. It is, I go with a group, I will have someone else reserve for me, mm-hmm. have someone else use a credit card. Mm-hmm. It's nice that my wife doesn't have my last name. <laughs> <laughs> there have been a couple of times when there are chefs who I know are very good, but who are very proud, and I think might want to kind of fix things up for me a little bit. Mm. Notice on Facebook that they're going on vacation. So I'll <laughs> go in and do a review <laughs> oh, when the sous chef's in charge. And smart. then I'll disclose that, you know, sure. and it ends up being a compliment. I waited until Jimmy John went away uh, on a beach vacation. Right, right. And uh, gosh, the people running the place are doing a great job. They know what they're doing. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Which is going to be the case at any good restaurant. Oh, you would hope. Yeah. In the realm of food writing, I mean, I know I still 
I still will always go to a reviewer before I go to Yelp or something like that if I have the option. Um, especially somebody I trust. You know, it's the classic thing like with film reviewers. <clears throat> I still miss Roger Ebert. Mm-hmm. Even though I didn't agree with him all the time, I knew where he was coming from. Right, exactly. So even if he said something I disagreed with, I knew why why he was saying what he was saying. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of, I guess you can't say ink spilled these days, a lot of... Uh, pixels blasted um, about sort of the the what's that one book the death of expertise um, but it still seems like people have the craving they still want to know that there's somebody that they can trust from week to week month to month who if you know if you or if somebody like Marty Rosen or whomever says I went to this place the chicken was great there's mm-hmm. probably a really good chance that the chicken is great there. Um, is that any different, though, in a town like Louisville? And the only reason I say that is one of the things I love about Louisville, though it took some adjusting at first, was it still does have that functioning um, sense of a community. Um, it's a city of neighborhoods, yes, mm-hmm. but it's also a wonderful, oversized, small town. And I think people know here you know, where to look for information, where to look for advice, uh, even if it's not personally. Um, so what do you, I guess what I'm getting at is sort of what do you, what do you, what is sort of the, the state of things as far as you can tell, um, for, for food writing and for the demand for it or for the utility of it? Hmm. Is that too broad a question? I'm, well, I'm it, trying to it zero took me a minute in to get there. So. Yeah, I'm kind of <laughs> circling and trying to find the landing place. I know uh, people I talk to who are aware of what I do. Hmm. You know, if they express appreciation, mm-hmm. I will hear that thing. You know, we either agree with what you write or we don't always agree with what you write, but it helps us know where to go. Sure. So that's all I know. I mean, you know, I don't want to bring too much vanity to the table here. No, go ahead. <laughs> I think you've earned the right to. For you, not in this case as a food writer, but for somebody who has just had a focus in your own life, of food and wine, um, have there been any things in recent years that you've just become fascinated with on your own, I, I, even if it's just what you've been cooking at home or, or cuisines that you never thought, oh, I should try that? Well, one thing I've been exploring a lot, and I think it ties in with mm-hmm. my uh, general interest in food production and mm-hmm. the environment and sustainability, I've noticed so many more people are turning toward vegetarian or mm. vegan and plant-based. Sure. I've been trying without, you know, making it a big deal, mm. but trying wherever we go to uh, look at the menu and see if they have interesting options. Mm. And if they do have interesting options in the realm, then to order one meat or seafood dish and one plant-based dish mm-hmm. and just report on them equally Mm -hmm. maybe this is like that thing we were talking about about radicalism sure sure don't say well and then they also do this vegetarian stuff but just say so here was the steak and it was like this (laughs) and here was the tofu casserole and it was like that and to do some of that kind of cooking at home Mm -hmm. particularly some of the new wave products uh, that stan over at morels does you know the Mm -hmm. You've, you're probably aware of this trend, but like the Beyond Burger right. and the Impossible Burger, right. where these major tech people are investing humongous amounts of money into this new technology, mm-hmm. not in the interest of satisfying a vegetarian market, but trying to come up with meat substitutes that are more 
more sustainable, sure. more ecological, and at the same time so good and so nutritious that people will be just as willing to eat them as real meat mm -hmm. if people can get over that aversion through experience. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm interested in that. I'm interested yeah. in cooking that way and looking for it when we go out, not as a all-the-time alternative, but as let's make this thing available. Mm -hmm. Are you a, are you an adventurous cook yourself? Usually. Yeah. Um, do you, do you do most of the cooking at home? I have. Yeah. Oh. My wife loves to cook too, but I do most of it. Okay. Well, the sad thing is those happens to the baby boom, you know. As you start to get older, your metabolism slows down a little and you can't eat as much. That's a hard thing to get used to. Many. Oh, yeah. I try to avoid the food, food critic physical profile as much as I can. <laughs> um, so as far as you're concerned, though, this, you're going to keep going to restaurants and writing about restaurants... As, as long, long as, as somebody will, yeah. as long as it's fun, as long as it's fun, as long as it's fun. Yeah, still pretty fun. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, something I've always been curious about, and and I will not keep you a lot longer, but I was talking to my wife the other day about uh, regional cuisines, mm -hmm. and I uh, I can't remember what we. Oh, I know what it was actually. Everybody's sort of in a tizzy right now because um, Top Chef. Oh yeah. Is in Kentucky right now, and. It's been very interesting l what little I've been following it, you know, the little things that uh, Padma has, has, you know, put up. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always interested to look at this area, Louisville, specifically Kentucky in general, um, in terms of kind of the idea of what Louisville food means, if that means anything, or what Kentucky food means. Um, and I have a, I, I have a weird split vision from my own life. I grew up in southern Louisiana, mm. but all my people were from southern Mississippi. So it was a weird mix of sort of traditional country cooking uh, with a little bit of, you know, New Orleans and mm -hmm. Cajun thrown in every once in a while for something different. Um, so when I first moved up here, I was curious, like, what is, what is Kentucky food? Um, if somebody were to ask you, what is Kentucky food? Are there certain things for you that really spell that out? Or is that sort of crossroads state. Yeah, well, again, I may be saying this as a city boy again, uh -huh. but I, I mentioned the cultural differences sure, sure. between Louisville and the rest of Kentucky, and I think that applies very much in terms of food. Okay. In fact, if there's one thing that's kind of odd and maybe I find a little irritating mm -hmm. is the tendency for Louisville restaurants in the last decade or so mm -hmm. to start identifying themselves specifically as Southern. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I always grew up feeling that this was very much not a Southern town. Right, right. And particularly as a baby boom kid watching the civil rights struggle going on in the real South. Sure. You know, I said, that's not us. Mm -hmm. Those people down there are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry about that with your no, Mississippi it's, background. it's true, it's true. <laughs> So now, you know, it's like, why are we saying we're Southern? Mm -hmm. What kind of talk is this? Yeah. So I don't know. It's Where do you think that, that comes from? Because, I mean, one of the things I do find interesting about Louisville is it, it is this, and I think it's partially because it's a, it's a river city, it's a port city, mm -hmm. it's this convergence. And geographically where it sits, you know, that little bit of mm -hmm. Midwest, that little bit of Southern, the little bit of yeah. Appalachian. And um, again, our culture involves streams from all of those places, yeah. but largely... Germans and Irish and a few Italians mm -hmm. from the mm -hmm. Northeast were really the original settlers here. Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe look at Germantown. Maybe look at uh, 
uh, I didn't eider down for an example of what real Louisville <laughs> is or uh, Jack's. Right, right. So really, if you want <clears throat> Louisville food, it's going to be somewhere between a fish fry and a fried bologna sandwich. And Maybe, you know, yeah, or, or a steak. Oh, yeah. Or fried mild white fish, yeah. not catfish. White fish. Everybody else in the real south does it with catfish, but mm-hmm. we don't. We do it with cod. That shocked me the first time I ordered fried fish somewhere, and I wasn't even thinking about it. Because where I come from, you just automatically assume it's catfish. And I took a bite. I'm like, this doesn't taste right. I couldn't put my finger on it. And then somebody said, oh, it's cod. <laughs> there is a theory which I'm not sure has ever actually been proven out. Mm-hmm. But distributors supposedly say that either Louisville is first or second after Boston in <laughs> consumption of cod in the United States. Really? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. So I think I think your point about diversity is probably true. Certainly there's some southern slash country cooking here, sure. not least because there's been a rural diaspora out of Louisville, and sure. a lot of people here have their background in the rural parts of the state. That might not have been the case 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a broad interest in southern cuisine around the country mm-hmm. now, and chefs here on the border, you know, you can excuse them for looking at that and saying, we're in Kentucky, I want a piece. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask, is if, if that may be just a little bit of, I don't want to say fatism, because that sounds too dismissive, but like you say, that, that incredibly active cuisine is just right there. Um, and now, you said uh, the rural diaspora, has that mostly been sort of Appalachia into the city, or do you see people kind of coming in from all I think points? over the years people have come in from all over the state. Yeah. And, you know, retain their affection for where they're from and where their parents are from. Mm-hmm. Um, so kill the idea that there's any such thing as Louisville cuisine because it's well, a little bit of everything. Unless it's a hot brown. <laughs> but I don't know. I, th- I think it's more that we're very adoptive. Let's sure, look at shrimp sure. and grits. Oh, yeah. Shrimp yeah. and grits. It's got to be a Louisville dish, right? <laughs> Every bistro on Bardstown Road sells it. Sean Ward, the chef at Jack Fry's, uh-huh brought it back from the South Carolina low country, mm-hmm. where it really is the local dish. Absolutely, yeah. In the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And everybody loved it. And pretty mm-hmm. soon everybody started making their own, and they still do. Right, right. So now it's a Louisville dish, but it wasn't. I didn't know that that was the first, though. Yeah. You mentioned the hot brown, and I was literally just having that conversation with my wife over the weekend. Um, if somebody came to town, I, and if this is putting you on the spot, let me know, but... If somebody came to town and said, all right, I have to have the best hot brown while I'm in Louisville, do, do, you, do you recommend? Oh, I don't <laughs> Or do you point I them mean, in several diplomatic directions? No, I, th- I think probably since it was invented at the Brown Hotel sure, sure. and mostly promulgated with the publicity efforts <laughs> of the Brown Hotel, I'd say just go to the Brown Hotel just go to and the have Brown. theirs. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of times, and this kind of goes back to what, what I was uh, asking before about the restaurant scene here, so we can kind of say the idea that, oh, we've never had a restaurant scene like this ever, is kind of a byproduct both of bad memories and also PR. Um, things like the hot brown, a lot of PR behind sort of making that what it is. Um, do you see those kinds of things at play sometimes when some new restaurant is getting a lot of heat and a lot of people are talking about it. Um, do you very often have that experience of there's all this attention, I'm going to go there and find out what it's about. You get there and you realize, huh, that was a lot of attention more than anything else. Or do most of the places kind of deserve their 
I'd say it varies. There, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if I really want to. No, no, I'm not call asking. Not asking right for now, specific. But yes, yeah, I can yeah. think of one in particular. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Three. <laughs> yeah, it happens. That's more than I would have thought. Okay. Because yeah. it seems like in a town, like I always joke uh, that. You know, you, you can you can know if not everybody in Louisville, it feels like, you know, you're at least maybe two or three steps removed from everybody. And I've always joked that I don't know how anybody gets away with anything here, um, which can be a good and a bad thing. Um, but I've wondered that sometimes about in individual cultures like restaurant culture, food culture, because it doesn't take long for word to get out if somebody's trying to pull one over mm-hmm. or if there's something weird going on you know, in the back office or, or, or whatever. Um, but it still happens. Yeah, I would say more often the disappointment is at a somewhat less spectacular level than that. But like, well, I can think of one place. The food was pretty good, but mm-hmm. the price was not commensurate with the quality of the food. Uh-huh. Places where the show was maybe, the, you know, the effusive service overweighed the... <laughs> relative ordinariness of the food compensating a little like bit that. yeah or this glitzy <laughs> style was maybe a 10 and the food was maybe a 6.5 <laughs> are there any but that's that's relatively rare i, I mean, would think yeah. i would say when i think of the openings the new places mm-hmm. i've been to over the last couple of years here mm-hmm. by and large i've been very happy with most of the places i've been yeah and there's something good to find in any i can't sure. think of I can't think of any place I've been for the last year or two where my experience was, man, this is so dismal, I just <laughs> can't write about it or got to warn people away. Do you, as a general uh, rule, do you wait until a place has been open for a little bit, or do you like to get in there early? Usually I do. Uh, <laughs> usually I like to wait. Is that just to kind of let things settle in and mm-hmm. find their footing? I have found a couple of times I went to a place very early, and either they really weren't ready yet, mm-hmm. or more typically, they'll go for a month and then decide to mess with the menu and say, this isn't working, let's mm-hmm. do something different. Mm-hmm. Then I'll look back and say, two of the four things I wrote about aren't on the menu anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's not, there are so many restaurants here, it's not too practical for me to go back to soon. <laughs> That's true. So it kind of leaves them, you know, it, it makes me feel that I wasn't totally right for them. Yeah. So I'd say normally a month. Maybe if some place is really hot. But, uh, have you had the experience of deciding to wait to review a place and then having it closed before you got there? Never that time. Never? Oh, okay. <laughs> Although I did go to one place that uh, closed between my writing the review oh. and it appearing in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, then it becomes sort of an obituary of yeah, sorts. Yeah. As I recall, we didn't run it. Oh, it's too bad. Um, do you speaking of places that close do you believe in the idea of a location curse i know there's places around where people talk about that (laughs) this is a generalization sure sure most of the places i know of that have been accused of having a location curse it's often a landlord curse Uh uh-huh either a landlord with unreasonable expectations Yeah. yeah hovers too much, demands too much, and wants more money for the lease than the restaurant can turn over and make its numbers work. Mm -hmm. I know there are a couple of spots not too far from here that seemed like they had 
the curse. Um, and word, what I would hear so often was it was a landlord issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they've been able to shake that, sometimes they haven't. Um, I, I was just curious, I, one of the, to me there's like no heartbreak, like a favorite restaurant just disappearing. Yeah, <laughs> just disappearing forever. <laughs> um, I still talk about um, the red pepper that was oh, down yeah. in Brownsboro. Red pepper was one of the first times that I really just made a point of always flipping it over right. to the back side of the menu. Um, and I still dream of their Dan Dan noodles to this mm-hmm. day. Oh, yeah. Um, but that was, I mean, I don't know about the landlord per se, but in terms of oh, making the numbers work, sure, sure. the chef was a very famous Chinese chef from mm-hmm. Chicago. Mm-hmm. The family got him down here. Mm-hmm. They simply couldn't afford to pay him yeah. on what a Chinese restaurant can charge in sure. Louisville, no matter how good it oh, is. Oh, sure. Got to tell you one story, though, speaking of haunted restaurants. <laughs> were you ever, were you here, have you heard of Parisian Pantry on Bardstown? At heard Pontecastle? of it, yes. Supposedly, that was literally haunted, uh-huh. if you believe in ghosts. <laughs> They did a renovation and took out a wall upstairs that enlarged a room. Mm -hmm. And the ghost who had lived in that room was very angry and caused that restaurant to close and the next (laughs) 10 restaurants that were there to close. Rumor has it that Cafe 360, Uh which is not one of my favorite places, has made it because they put the wall back. (laughs) Stranger things. It could be. Stranger things. the one haunted restaurant that was allegedly really haunted. I've always, a real ghost. I have always been disappointed. I have I have been in a handful of haunted restaurants over the years, and I got nothing. I, I'm kind of disappointed. Oh, nobody ever saw this ghost. All she did was make the restaurant. Just screwed up the business side of things. <laughs> oh, that's funny. A savvy ghost. She knew where to get right to the heart you of it. Bet. I, I was going to try to sort of pretend that I could do a, a summing up, but it sounds like you're sort of still in mid-stride with everything that you're doing right now. Any, any, any new adventures? That one you're, day at a time. One, day at one a time. foot ahead of the other. I don't have any other, don't have any hot new irons in the fire right now. <laughs> it seems like everything else is keeping a pretty good temperature as it goes yeah. along. I was going to ask you actually, uh, and, and then I will let you go, uh, with Hot Bites, which I have to admit, I... I I will always go there just out of curiosity to see what people are talking about. Um, well, we should mention on air that, uh, I don't know that we actually said this, mm-hmm. but that since about 2006, we have partnered with Leo Weekly and also provided a restaurant review almost every week for them. Mm-hmm. Thanks for mentioning that. I didn't realize it had been that that long with you. Yeah, them. I think we started in maybe 2006, maybe 2007. Oh, that's fantastic. Um and it's not just you. You've got several people that will do reviews through there, right? Well, I do one weekly review every week except the last. Mm-hmm. And then my colleague from Hot Bites, Marsha Lynch, right. does a column called Industry Standard, which is sort of an insider's right, look right. at the restaurant business. Yeah. So that is actually, we provide her column to Leo, but yeah. she, she takes my spot on the last Wednesday of the month. She she has changed some of my behaviors in restaurants for the better. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, so besides the great articles, the great reviews, um, you've got a super active forum on there. Mm-hmm. I know it you know it, it vacillates for a million different reasons, but yeah. you've got some people that are are diehard about wanting to share what they know, what they think. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of I think the rise of 
uh, more, really more Facebook than anything else. Mm-hmm. Twitter, to a lesser extent, has certainly drawn a lot away from independent forums, which mm-hmm. is too bad. But as you say, we keep on keeping on with mm-hmm. that and then have a Facebook presence as well. Sure, sure. What do you think keeps people, though, on on one of those forums? I love the fact that forums continue, that they persist. Well, I think putting on my MDiv hat, it's sort of like a church, you know. Certain people are drawn to a community to share something that they're passionate about with each other. I would love to add something to that, but I can't. I think that sums it up. Um, Thank you so much for coming in and talk to me. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's been good to meet you.